am George Knapp listening to that UFO podcast and having one hell of a good time. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and on my show today I'm very much looking forward to speaking to my guest. She is a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, also an author of several books including Heaven Can Wait, the ever popular American Cosmic and now her latest release Encounters, Explorations with UFOs, Dreams, Angels, AI and Other Dimensions. Making her second appearance on the podcast, I'd like to welcome Professor Diana Walsh-Pasulka. Diana, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be on your podcast. I love your podcast. Thanks, Diana. That is it. Very much appreciated. Diana, you're always a very popular guest, and just from the sheer volume of listener questions I got over the course of 24 to 48 hours, uh, this is going to be a good one, okay? So let's get straight into your new book, uh, Encounters. What was the inspiration behind starting this one? Oh, sure. So um, I think your your listeners most likely know that when I wrote American Cosmic, I was actually... I. I am a professor of religious studies in the field of Catholic history and Christian history. And so it was somewhat by accident that I got into looking at um, contemporary reports of UFOs. And that was in 2012. And uh, American Cosmic was the culmination of about six years of research into that topic. And it published and it was actually in press in late 2017, 2018. And, um, and that's when, of course, Leslie Kane, Helene Cooper, and Ralph Blumenthal published the, you know, now pretty famous expose in the New York Times, uh, the Tic Tac video, um, and the black programs, uh, you know, basically. And then after that, um, there was the um, the uh, Pentagon report, of course, in 2021 that came out. So basically, a lot happened really fast right after American Cosmic was published. And I was pretty inundated, I would say, with um, a lot of uh, feedback from people all over the world uh, about the topic and, you know, wanting to know more about it. And not only that, but um, my research actually got a lot deeper. Um, I was contacted by more people who studied UFOs from, you know, all over the world, and especially here in the U.S. And so I continued my research. And so Encounters was a follow-up to, it's like American Cosmic 2, uh, whereas American Cosmic was was pre-U.S. you know, US, you know co- coming out and having their, you know, quote-unquote disclosure. Um, Encounters is now post that. So what I'm doing in Encounters is I'm looking at um, – you know, people who are credible um, and who have had verifiable, when I say verifiable uh, UFO encounters, what I'm talking about is we have, you know, objective data, like, uh, you know, we're way beyond having radar reports of UFOs. Now we have very sophisticated technologies that allow us to identify, you know, what's out there, what's in our atmosphere. And so, you know, that corresponds to these internal subjective uh, experiences that people have. So encounters is more of a deep dive into those experiences that people have of things that you can say they actually did see. You mentioned the US has had its sort of quote unquote disclosure uh, since all those things have happened. And that's a big word. It's a loaded word. Do you think you've had your UFO disclosure from the work you've done in American Cosmic and all the research you put in? And is this a book that you could have written in 2012 
or do you think you had to go through what you've went through over those six or seven years to write this book? Oh, um, okay. So when I wrote, you know, when I uh, came along and, and stumbled upon the people who I stumbled upon, like uh, Gary Nolan, who in the book American Cosmic is James, I'd use pseudonyms uh, because it was a, it was a secretive situation. And, but, you know, and, and I came at it not as, as a person who studied UFOs, but as a person who studied miraculous events in Catholic history. And so I had a lot of methods, you know, and, uh, and I used those to study this. And what I came, uh, you know, what I came across was, was basically, it looks like a legacy program, you know, and, um, and I, I was studying within that. And American Cosmic came directly out of that. So in a sense, I was going blind into it because we didn't have that language back in 2012, 2013. Nobody was talking about legacy programs. Very, very few people were talking about crash retrievals and things like that. But my book begins at a a crash retrieval site and then goes on from there. At the time, it didn't, you know, I, I, I didn't know what was going to happen in the future. Um, I didn't know this was all going to come out. So, um, so in a sense, when you look back at on it, um, American Cosmic was a very specific book written at a specific time. Um, and if, you know, I couldn't actually write that book today because these things are all now out there in the public. You know, we have the, the language of crash retrieval. We have the language of legacy programs. Um, we we know that there are people who do study in these programs that, you know, these uh, SAP programs, special access programs. These were the people I was talking to them. I wasn't in any way, I wasn't a person in the intelligence community. I didn't have a clearance, you know, don't have a clearance. And I didn't know the the extent of the organized effort to distract uh, scholars uh, from studying this topic, basically. So, th- so I think actually that was all very good. I think that that was a good thing um, because, you know, I'm coming at it from kind of like the, um, the every person on the street type thing, you know, I'm not coming at it knowing the whole history of, of ufology in the States or in Brazil or in Peru for that matter, or in France or anything. I'm coming at it from just a person with some research skills and I get in there and discover all of this. So it's a pretty clean book in that respect. Yeah. And if people think we're skipping over that and that earlier work from Diana, that was all discussed in the first interview we done last year back in March. So go back and check that one out. We're going to look at encounters uh, for the rest of this interview and some other uh, topics as well. And you mentioned your methodologies before, Diana. And I wonder, given the amount of people you've spoken to over the years now, almost decade or so, do you have a process you go through to, to rate or to scale the likelihood that someone has experienced either a miraculous event or a UFO experience and how you can rate the believability of said experience? Oh, absolutely. So, um, you know, all right. So what do we have when we, you know, when somebody's claiming to have experienced something? Um, Well, first off, let's, (laughs) this is a really complicated topic because you do have a lot of people talking about it. Um, The topic itself uh, is entertainment. Okay. So there's a lot of it enter- entertainment media that has to do with 
this topic. So you've got somebody who comes along who's doing research and their job is to do research and teach university and this type of thing. And what they're studying is actually also, you know, the topic of entertainment. Now, these categories are very strange <laughs> because on the one hand, you have, um, you know, basic obfuscation, you know, of, you know, yes, we definitely want to use poetic license. And that's, you know, a nice term uh, to spin this, to make it really interesting to people. You know, we need to make it really uh, scary for them because people, you know, fear sells. Okay. So, you know, you do have a lot of people who are uh, in, in this field who of course are hoping to, um, you know, uh, create, a documentary that sells. I, I was just on uh, a consultant for a documentary. And so, you know, this is the encounters and by the way, encounters and my, my book was named encounters before the documentary came along. And it was, I think it's a coincidence that they're both called encounters. Um, but you know, here I have to admit that they're not going, if I'm telling them something, they might not take what I say and actually act on it and operationalize it. Right. What they're doing is they're, they're creating entertainment. So, you know, so I think that people who are in, who are just coming into this field, trying to understand UFOs, they have a really hard time doing so because the, the whole topic has been mired in entertainment forever, it seems. And uh, some of that is actually intentional. Okay. And some of it isn't, it's just interesting. Everybody wants to know about this. So, you know, this is just the way it's going to be. So what I've done is especially, um, with respect to, let's just say, let me think about the methods that I used when I first started to do the research, I had a lot of skills with respect to looking at data that had been what we call redacted. And in, in religious studies, we have a whole field called redaction criticism, which is basically trying to fill in the gaps of how uh, a story has been misinterpreted, uh, either intentionally or non-intentionally, just through the telephone game. I don't know if you have that, this idea that, you know, you, it, it, the story changes with retelling again Absolutely, and, yeah. and again. Okay. So, um, a lot of the research that I did pre-UFO was looking at doctrines in the Catholic Church, uh, especially this doctrine of purgatory. And what I found when I started to do this research was that purgatory was actually a place in Ireland, okay? So there's an actual place uh, in Loch Derg, which is this lake, um, on an island, and people would go there in, the, in you know, about 1100, 1200, and they would do these rites of purgation, like, you know, some penances and things like that. And so what I found was that due to the subsequent colonization of Ireland by England, a lot of that history was lost. And so how are we going to re, you know, how are we going to find this redacted history? So what I had to do was I had to pay attention to a lot of things like, um, oral tradition. Okay. Um, songs, poetry, limericks, Basically, the stuff that gets carried down that's non-official, that's not written, but that's carried through communities. And this really helped me when I began to understand that a lot of the data about UFOs, especially after the 1990s, had been completely um, disappeared, right? So where did it go? Well, um, it was carried uh, through a tradition that now I think uh, dominates a lot of 
special access programs, and that would be the oral tradition. And this is something that you, you know, you've, you've got to be, you've got to like learn how to, how to listen to this type of data because, you know, people want, there's a lot of people that focus on written documents, but the kinds of document, the kind of data that we have today with respect to this topic is, is oral. It's oral tradition. It's not necessarily written down and it can't be. Have you ever felt, and I was going to ask this later, but it seems relevant now that in all the people you've spoken to, and let's be fair, you've gotten pretty deep into the UFO topic, given the levels of people you speak to, you've ever been either unwittingly or knowingly fed disinformation? Have you ever had that feeling yourself? Oh, I had that feeling from the very beginning. Okay, so the first thing a person who is looking at this objectively would note note is that the history of it is a a history of misinformation, okay? And the people that get cultivated as assets would be people like me, okay? So when I was in New Mexico with Tyler and Gary, um, Gary and I, you know, I would tell Gary, Gary, you know that, you know, we could, you know, this could be a setup here. Um, We both knew that. Um, And I also wrote it in American Cosmic. I was like, you know, but it's part of the data that I was accumulating. So I honestly didn't know the future <laughs> and that this was going to blow up. Uh, what I did know was that I was honing my method, my academic method. And therefore, it, I needed to be alert to the processes of disinformation. And anyone who's doing this, this is why academics, by the way, wouldn't get into this topic. Although now there are so many that, that are wanting to get into it is because of this this disinformation. First, there's disinformation. And we don't actually, we're not taught in graduate school, except for actually in religious studies, where we are taught this, because we know that a lot of religious history is a history of disinformation, right? Um, You know, people have these amazing experiences, and then the church will kind of go, ah, that didn't really happen, or this happened instead, you know, to control the narrative. So built into religious studies is this attention to disinformation. And so, of course, uh, in the first chapter, I was like, all right, so there are these communities that want to study UFOs. Some of them are academic and they believe that everything should be transparent. And then some of them are people in the government who know that this cannot be transparent. How do we reconcile these two communities? So you you had to develop these kinds of, um, you know, uh, you have to understand, are you being used as an asset? Are you being used to disinform or inform? And so the way I got around that was just to be as honest as possible and as transparent as I could possibly be and say, listen, we know that there's disinformation. Um, You know, what I'm finding here, I'm going to keep to my method, which is religious studies, which is basically I'm not going to believe or disbelieve. And I propose that we all do that, not just, you know, I'm not trying to tell you that this is a UFO crash site because, well, frankly, at the time, I didn't believe it. <laughs> and um, and I don't know, you know, where this is going to lead. But I have these two scientists, one of whom, you know, both of whom are incredibly credible. Uh, one, I'm not sure if he's telling us the truth. You know, I just don't know. But uh, this is my job is to find out where it leads. So, so absolutely. And do people still feed me? Yes, absolutely. Uh, 
this is part of the reason I just had a podcast last night where people were like, um, yeah, we heard that you didn't want to do this anymore, you know, a couple of years ago. And, and in fact, that's true. Um, and part of the reason why was because the level of people trying to influence me and influence what I, you know, what I think and what kind of information I have is unbelievable. You wouldn't even believe it. Um, and I didn't like that. I didn't like to live like that, you know, as this constant person being inundated with information from people who, some of who I could tell were lying to me or just trying to influence me. And so, um, you know, I, I have like what I call my pre UFO friends and my post UFO friends. Right. Um, and so, so I did get back into it, but I got back into it super carefully. I can appreciate on a very, the, the low level of the scale, people trying to influence you. And that's not for anyone listening to this, me claiming government officials are getting in touch. Just listeners have very strong opinions. I can have a guest on and I'll get the the message afterwards. Oh, they're a total BS artist and I know this for a fact and this for a fact and they said this, but don't tell anyone. And that's fine. And that's not to disparage that. And I don't appreciate people getting in touch with me. But like you say, I think you have to form and make your own opinion. And if it means making your own mistakes along the way, then so be it. But that's the best way to learn as opposed to, oh, X has told me this and I have to go with that. That must be true because then you're just getting pulled from pillar to post with information. So you must get that way up the scale. I do. And uh, some of the best um, advice I got years ago was from Jacques Vallée, who basically said, don't believe anything. I've always gone with us a wrestler, Scott Hall, who passed away a year or two ago. And uh, he always used the mantra, you know, listen to everyone's advice, but make up your own mind, which always thinks a, a nice and politically savvy way to go about things. Um, I struggled, Diana, just in reading the introduction to this to not every other line be writing out a question for you. So I'm going to skim through some of the early stuff in the book and ask your, your thoughts off the back of it. And there's a common opinion in the mainstream that any true disclosure, capital D disclosure, you know, UFO on the White House lawn uh, would send religions into chaos. You rightly point out that many religions don't discount the idea of an extraterrestrial presence or another non-human intelligence. Do you think that the public reaction to imagine a second coming of Jesus type scenario, as we would be have it portrayed in the mainstream, would that be different to that of an alien species making a similar type of contact? Or do you think there would be similarities or differences? Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So, um, you're right. So if a disclosure happened, capital D type of disclosure, I think the people who, the communities of people, in my opinion, who would be the most ready for this would be practicing, uh, members of religious groups, right? Because, and I, when I say practicing, I'm talking about not the people who just kind of blindly go to church <laughs> or blindly do this, right? Go to temple or whatnot, but that people who actually believe it, right? They're believers. Uh, they already believe, they already have a metaphysical category for uh, non-human intelligence. And there are indigenous communities that believe they're in contact with um, what they would even call uh, non-human intelligence that actually come and speak to them and so forth. So, you know, it would probably just be a lot of, I would call them the truly secular people who would be caught off guard and completely, um, you know, in shock. I don't think, I just don't buy that it's going to devastate humans, you know, that this is so incredibly, you know, terrifying 
and or uh, destabilizing. I definitely don't buy that. Um, in terms of this idea that, you know, the rapture is what you're talking about, this idea that Jesus is going yeah. to come in. So a lot of uh, Christians I know who've had UFO experiences now interpret um, this idea of, you know, a second coming as a UFO coming, like that Jesus is going to come, but the clouds that, that he said to, you know, be arriving on, these are going to be like UFOs. We actually have religions that believe this. So there's nation of Islam. They're not talking about Jesus coming back. A nation of Islam though, does believe that these UFOs are coming back and they do have an apocalyptic idea of, you know, this is the end of the world for certain people. And, but their group is going to be saved by these, um, these uh, ETs. So yes, so those, those kinds of, now the thing is, is that, um, well, I'll just leave it at that. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And and recently I was doing some research on uh, the Ruwa Zimbabwe incident for something. And I was watching some old interviews at the time. Now, the, the kids at the aerial school who saw what they saw, that was um, a few days before that. They were seeing UFOs in the sky over Zimbabwe, which there's a few kind of old school videos of. And people got in contact with the news stations in Zimbabwe at the time as well. And some of the, the kind of vox pop speaking to the populace about the UFOs, one of the gentlemen did say people are saying that this is Jesus coming back and this is Jesus streaking across the skies. So that kind of connections there and that's in back in Zimbabwe in the mid nineties. So that, that totally tallies up and I get that feeling. That's one thing that's changed for me doing this podcast for three and a half years is that folks of a religious persuasion are far more accepting to talk about the idea of UFOs, alien species, other entities than those who aren't. Oh, totally. Uh, absolutely the case. And um, I'm getting a lot of feedback today from people, uh, even some whistleblowers who are Christian, Catholic, and they want to reconcile, you know, they, for them, they see this in a religious way. And, you know, they're asked to do testimonies, right, to Congress and that type of thing, sworn testimonies. And they you know, they uh, say, I'll give you this sworn testimony, but I'm Christian and this is how I feel about it. And so they kind of include it within. I, now, I, I haven't told them to do that. They told me after the fact that they did that. But um, yeah, so I think that, um, you know, it's like a lot of secular people just don't consider that most people in the world actually are religious. So we have a lot, you know, most human beings on earth practice some religion i've got a very a very small sample size but i would find most people i speak to for example in my day job find it far easier to believe in the notion or idea of a god or a supreme being than aliens visiting the planet is that is that fair is that what you would say would be the the general size of things i do think so yes yeah i do think so i think that um uh it could be changing of course you know but i do think that People generally, well, actually, okay, so where I work, of course, <laughs> it's, you're going to have a lot of people who are not, who are not religious, um, but they're more inclined to believe that extraterrestrials exist than that a God exists. I wonder, and again, this is something I was going to ask later, but it seems relevant now. Do you think, and I hope this is worded correctly, right? 
in 2,000 years' time, that's thinking the Bible was written 2,000 years ago. Let's just go with that as the standard thinking, although you would probably correct me. If we are still here as a species, that we may look back on the times now as we look back now on biblical times and that this was a, a new age and it was the start and a growing belief of understanding UFOs and that the primitive way we maybe understand them now is the way folks understood the world 2,000 years ago. Does that make sense? Almost the beginning of a new religion. Yes, yes, yes. I think so. I definitely think so. I think that um, hopefully we'll make it 2,000 years <laughs> from now. And if we do, I think we're going to see this as a really important time period, the early 21st century, because not only do we have this excursion into space, not just from Russia and the United States, but also China and other countries. But we also have uh, virtual reality and artificial intelligence on the scene, completely changing everything. So I think that those two things together, this is what really is going to change, you know, kind of shift us into uh, basically a new way of being. Absolutely. Talk about that for me, because that obviously comes up and that's a part of the book. It's a part of the title. Do you think going to the extreme of that, there's a possibility that we meet some form of other intelligent life within a virtual world? You know, thinking of, let's, I'm going to use a Disney example here really badly, but Wreck-It Ralph, you know, they go into a computer game and there's all this other life. Now, I'm not saying we're going to go in and meet Sonic, but is there an idea that we start to get so plugged into what the digital universe could be? that's how another intelligence decides to contact and get in touch with us. Yes. So um, I do have a chapter in the book where I talk about this. And so right after American Cosmic was published, there were a lot of people who reached out to me. And some of the people who really enjoyed my book were the people who I would say created a lot of the, the, you know, the technologies that we're using today. And um, so I met with a lot of them. And one of them I interviewed uh, for the book and what's really interesting is that in these communities, they do think that AI is going to, especially quantum AI, is going to be, in a sense, a way to contact or make contact with um, intelligences that are, you know, not necessarily within this uh, 3D space time, right, that, that we experience. And so I, I thought this was interesting, and it actually corresponded to some work that I'd done in looking at NASA historian's work. Uh, uh, his name is Stephen Dick, and he is the NASA, he's been the NASA historian for like 45 years or something like that. And he's not only is he a historian, but he's also an astronomer. And he also helped found astrobiology and exobiology, um, which is the academic search for exoplanets, but also intelligent life out there in the universe. And so, um, 20 years ago, he wrote an essay. It was around 20 years ago about speculating about, you know, um, what it would be like should we encounter intelligent extraterrestrial life. And he concluded by basically saying, now this is a long time ago, that 
it was going to be either their technology or they will be technological themselves. They will be technology. And so what's interesting is as I was re-looking at this, and I actually did a Twitter space with uh, the person who is I interviewed in the book, and it's still up there on my Twitter feed if anybody wants to listen to it. But I basically just summarize his conclusions. And what he basically says is that, you know, think about us as a civilization that say we get beyond an extinction event because we could very well extinct ourselves. Okay. Let's hope we won't, but we could. Okay. So let, let's say we get, we, we deal with the, the fact that we are, you know, we we're trying to kill each other off and, um, and say we learn how to live together, right. Peaceably or somewhat peaceably. And well, what happens is we come, we be, we are going to become super technological. Right. And so, um, then what happens is that at some point we are going to be spacefaring. And then, so we, we extrapolate that to ET, like, you know, another civilization. Well, they're going to be so far ahead of us that it's going to be very difficult for us to make any kind of contact with them, or even maybe for us, for them to even contact us. So let's think about it this way. Um, we try to have communication with, say, you know, think about like uh, insect species, like ants, like ant colonies. Well, we can see them, you know, and they're going about doing the kinds of things that they do, but we certainly cannot communicate with them. They don't even know we exist. Okay. So there's this idea of an incommensurability. We cannot contact them. They cannot contact us. They don't even know we exist. Okay. So uh, he says, we're you know, we're like that. So the, the ET out there is most likely like us to ants, right? They can't communicate with us because that's how, you know, clueless we are about them. So then he's, he's talking about how AI can actually form a bridge to doing this type of thing. And I do have, I actually have three chapters in the book that does talk about this. The first two cover Dr. Eel Whiteley, um, E.O. Whiteley's work, where she's actually hammering out this kind of um, this kind of technology, this interface that we can utilize in order to understand even the terrestrial intelligence in our spaces, like um, whales or dolphins or you know um, our cats, you know, or you know things like that, like you know, we can't even communicate with them or, you know, we think we can, Oh, I can communicate with my cat. Right. <laughs> but, you know, let's just like bring it down. We can't actually have this kind of like, you know, Hey, how was your day? You know, Oh, my day was great. How was yours? This type of interface with them. So she's, she's working on a, a language uh, to do that. She's using her, uh, she works actually with astronauts. Um, and so she's using the work that she did with them in order to utilize this type of language that she's working on. It may be within that part of the book, but is that where you talk about astronauts when they go into space and see the Earth and they almost have these feelings that they cannot put into words? And it's something that just being on the planet, you cannot experience. And that handful of folks who have been able to go out and see the big blue ball and that infinite black background. Um, I wonder, do you, do you think we have to start educating our own people maybe in the western civilizations because indigenous folks seem to have a better grasp of this that we inhabit such a small layer of the planet and i had this conversation with a friend the other day on his podcast he doesn't believe in ufos aliens just totally dismissive of the subject and it's kind of fun to argue with him back and forward but i tried to say to him that we inhabit the skin of this planet 
people think we populate it massively we don't most of it's water we're on this tiny little bit of crust we don't know what's underneath you know i don't know if you've watched monsters of california yet the tom delong movie i haven't seen it so uh not not to spoil it but it goes into like bigfoot sasquatch being a real thing and potentially what's underneath the planet as it goes as Tom DeLonge as you would expect it would go, okay? And it's it's enjoyable in that sense. But I tried to bring up the idea that we don't even know what's under our oceans. I think you mentioned something about the number of species being there's 9 million species potential on the planet, of which we have maybe catalogued 2 million. That's right. But it would only take one or two of those to be more intelligent than us. And, you know, hey, presto. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I completely uh, think that's absolutely the case. So... Um, in going through the Vatican, uh, archive, the, uh, observatory archive, actually. So the Vatican has a space observatory and I was able to stay there for a bit and do research in their archive because everything that has to do with space and the Vatican from Western history goes into that archive. So, um, I came across a lot of references to this group called the order of the dolphin and the the dolphin was a group of scientists. Carl Sagan was part of it. John Lilly was part of it. And what they were trying to do was, you know, you know, their ultimate goal was to find ET and communicate. But what they were really doing was also trying to communicate with terrestrial species like dolphins and, you know, things like that. And the point that Carl Sagan actually made, um, one of his points that was really good was that, um, you know, we've taught dolphins some of our language. We've taught, taught chimpanzees some of our language, uh, but we don't know theirs. <laughs> we haven't learned their language. So, you know, so we've we've got some work to do. But yes, I agree with you. The earth itself is fascinating. And um, I think it's how Putoff wrote, well, he did. He wrote um, Ultra Terrestrials, you know, that paper that he wrote about. Yeah. So he explores that also, you know, that perhaps the kinds of things that we're seeing now are actually terrestrial but just unknown to us. And would you go along with, and this is a whole other conversation for a different day, that there could potentially be another intelligent civilization physically living alongside us on this planet, such as, you know, the Abyss James Cameron type movie Under the Ocean or Deep Within the Earth's Crust? Or do you think it has to be something a little bit different? I think that we that it could possibly be. I'm not going to rule it out. That's fair. And it's a probably a different conversation for a different podcast with you. But uh, And it goes without saying, you've spent a lot of time at the Vatican, given your role in studying religious history, you know a lot about it. I'm an absolute layman when it comes to this, but there's long been rumoured to be your documentation deep within the Vatican archives that confirm a long history of ET visitation. Indiana Jones probably has a lot of, you know, to do with this kind of stuff, you know, secret archives and stuff. Um, yeah. Is that something you feel is more true than not? that there may be a deep truth within the Vatican vaults that there, and they've been open to the discussion in recent years, haven't they, that there could be ET life out there, what it would look like and whatnot. Um, the Pope's even addressed it, I believe, several times. Is there something to that, that in the vaults lies the answers to this? Um, okay, so yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, this is where I think that we have to actually ex uh, open our minds to different ways of thinking because the Vatican is actually, it's not, it's not a democracy. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, for us who are, you know, post, you know, uh, democratic revolutions of the, you know, the 1700s, you know, um, 
we have to understand that the Vatican's been around longer than, you know, our, you know, the, our political systems and they have, they have miles of, of basically reports and manuscripts and codexes, a lot of which have not even been translated or even opened for hundreds of years. Okay. So what I found when I was doing my research into Catholic history, um, you know, pre 2012 is I found that so much is, is not digitized. So much is, is out there and most likely, uh, it will disappear. And when I say disappear, I mean, literally it's going to like crumble because it's, it's written on, you know, paper that's so old that you can't even put your finger on it because it will, you know, it'll disintegrate. So this is the kind of stuff that I was looking at. I was looking at things that people had, they, you know, they're not, they're not in there looking for these things to tell you the truth. They're not in there going, okay, where's the references to the aerial phenomena stuff. You know, you do have a whole shelf of that in the observatory, right? And, but you don't have it in the Vatican archive, which goes on for a couple of miles. You have to, you have to know what you're looking for when you're there. Um, You can't go into the archive itself. You have to request and then people will go in and get it for you. And it took me about, you know, it took me about a year to, to, for them to locate what I was actually looking for. So when I finally did get there, I was, you know, they already had it for me, but it, you know, it's not like you can just go in there and search things. You can't do and they're also trying to digitize as much as they possibly can of Western history before it goes away. Um, so, you know, okay. So that said, I think everybody needs to get a picture of what it's like, you know, you can't just open the door and go in there and look for the UFO file. You know, there's no like UFO file, right? Um, because what's going to happen is that it was never called a UFO file. So if there's something that looks like a, a, a UFO, and there's certainly so many things that do in the Vatican archive. They're not going to be, they're not going to have that label. You know, you're not going to find them in their digital database. They haven't been put into the digital database. So, um, so you really need to have people going in there. I took Tyler with me um, to look and see, you know, what, what merits calling this something that looks like it could correlate to modern day U- UAPs. Um the Vatican is not, you know, the, the people that I met there, they're just trying to keep, you know, they have a, a huge religion of billions of people. You know, they're not like, they're not like ufologists, like, you know, they're not like us going, okay, where's the Vatican, where's the Vatican secret UFO stuff, right? They're not doing that. Um, it's also really difficult to get in. Um, you have to have specific credentials and um, most people who have these credentials wouldn't be looking for that. So when when I went there, I asked Tyler not to say who he was. You know, I said, okay, you can say who you are, but don't say where you work or what affiliations you have. And uh, we thought that maybe that would, you know, he could just get in based on some people, you know, that kind of thing. But he wasn't able to. So he actually had to show, you know, his credentials. And then he got in, strangely. I was so surprised. But I also, we didn't tell people we were there to to you know, we were there to look for Joseph of Copertino's canonization records. Uh, we saw a lot of other things while we were there, but that's how you, that's how you'd have to go about doing that. Any particularly cool things while you were there? Absolutely. <laughs> Anything you can actually say? 
I mean, um, when you that, do that's of relevance. I mean, stuff that would be of relevance, of course. Yeah, UAPs. Almost everything we looked at was relevant, and um, and I have like a lot of it on a computer that's not uh, online, so it's kind of offline. And um, you know, I can't. Um, in order to get that information, I'd have. I had to basically sign a document with the Vatican that said that I wasn't going to share unless I vetted the people and they were academics and they were going to use it in an academic way and this type of thing. So, yeah, so there is a lot of stuff uh, that's really, really interesting and relevant. And I have asked, um, I've asked Hal Putoff and Eric Davis to look at this information with me um, and go through it. Um, A lot of it has to do with patterns that are, relevant to UAP. Um, so that's a project that is an ongoing project. Exciting. Um, we'll move on slightly, but it's going to come back to that religious aspect of things in just a second. So it's a nice kind of place to put this. Uh, the book is a collection of encounters, you know, hence the name, that reflect a lot of occurrences and events that uh, reflect what happens across the phenomenon. Is there anything you would have liked to included, but for various reasons couldn't? Yes. So there were more encounters uh, by people that are in within the UFO community who um, have ama- have some amazing encounters. And I wanted to include those. Uh, th- you know, I'm working with an editor on this and the editor suggested the one, you know, suggested the ones that we finally included in the book. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to include some really cool encounters that people that we know um, have had and thus initiated their interest in the topic and, you know, and doing now this research. Um, Very, very interesting. And um, yeah, so I would have liked to have done that. And these people are like not affiliated with uh, space agencies or they're not professors or scientists or anything like that. They're just you know, everyday types of people. So um, I would have liked to have included a couple of those. The only pseudonym used within this time, or no pseudonym, and you do so well, Diana, to talk about Tyler without ever using his real name and in previous podcasts as well to never slip up. So kudos to you. Um, But I think what's really going to jump out to folks and what jumped out to me in this book was the the chapter or two chapters on the grey man. I think for many, that'll be a real highlight for them. Can you talk a little bit about the Grey Man and why the anonymity for for him alone? Right. So um, if I use a pseudonym, it's to protect the, it's protect, to protect someone. Um, and most likely because they're still working in the capacity of, you know, doing work in the field. Um I also, um, I don't, there's a person in the book that Moon Girl who um, is named, but not, you know, in a sense, she's synonymous. Um, I never use her last name. Um, But Gray Man is, um, what I found is that there are groups of people who do work for, say, aerospace companies and stuff like that, who are not allowed to, say, be on social media um, and, and people have questioned me about this and they said, no, nah, that, that just, people aren't like that. Well, absolutely they are. There are people like that, you know, who lead these kinds of lives. Um, and so he would be put into this category, um, you know, 
um, it, hence the name gray man, you know, somebody who you would not notice and doesn't want to be noticed, uh, doesn't want any fanfare, um, needs to have this kind of, um, I met some people like this, by the way, at the Vatican too, uh, people who are just completely not, they're not even, believe it or not, because of the jobs they have, they're not even allowed to see the news. I know it sounds weird, but, you know, some t people take vows uh, of, you know, and these are the communities that they're in. I personally did not know people like this existed prior to 2012, but I met them and they certainly exist. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so, um, so Gray Man works within this, um, part of the reason why I used Gray Man for these chapters was because of his, not just what he did, because he's somewhat like a, a, the same kind of job that Tyler had, uh, but in Australia. And he also, when he looks at, at the kinds of things that he's done and that he has experienced, he looks at them through the lens of a religion, basically, you know, and he's a, a he's a practicing Christian. And so he's, you know, he is, if I'm, the, the choice I made to put the people in the book that I put in, they reflect a lot of people. So if I choose Gray Man, it's because I met a lot of people who were very similar to Gray Man. And so he kind of fit that and was willing to be, a, you know, interviewed for the book. Um, so, yeah, so he's he's a person who um, who has a lot of experiences and, you know, has thought a lot about them, especially through the lens of being a scientist and working in this field. So on that, uh, within those chapters, not to go into all the detail, uh, but to tease it, St. Michael comes up, uh, a symbol of protection. Um, and you begin to notice yourself various symbols coming up after initial conversations with the grey man, who in turn has his own epiphany of sorts. And I want to ask two questions off the back of that, Diana. Um, first one, what's your take on the idea that old religious ideas of angels, demons, and such were real entities who over time have just been catalogued differently in different texts and scriptures. And a little spoiler alert, but at the end of Tom DeLong's Secret Machines book one, it very much ends with the line, and if you want to skip 10 seconds, if you've not read it, folks, that the Greek gods never left the earth. And essentially, this is what we're seeing now. You know, what are your thoughts on that idea? Okay, so I didn't know that about Tom DeLong's book. And that's really interesting because I actually did give a talk on the Greek gods and the muses um, in New York City a couple of weeks ago. And I didn't want that talk, um, they were going to uh, videotape it and post it. And I didn't want them to do that. And thankfully they didn't. And part of the reason was because it appears that it's absolutely true that the Greek gods have never left um, in a very real way. Uh, there's, uh, especially in the space industries, you know, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of what I would call rituals and, um, forms of almost worship, um, to these, you know, these gods. So, okay. <laughs> that said, um, you know, I think that people who are of various religions would, would object to that idea. And they would say, you know, you have Augustine, who's an early Christian, 
um, who writes a lot about Christianity. And he basically says, in the past, we had the myths, right? And now we have real religion, right? We, these are real entities that we're worshiping. Okay. So of course, a lot of people could say, you know, that's just idiosyncratic. You know, you just think that because you believe this, that they, they didn't exist. Because certainly the the Greeks in the fifth century certainly believed in, you know, their, their gods and goddesses. Um, but there were, you know, um, people like Plato and Socrates would say similar things too, that, you know, these are myths and we don't believe them. But then again, they would have their own idea of the good, which was a mystical, you know, thing of truth and beauty. So, um, so I guess, you know, so everyone has their own claim on what is a God and what is not a God, you know, what's a deity and what's not a deity. And so, um, yeah, so I think that with respect to UFOs, we can't get away from interfacing with things that people would consider to be, even Stephen Dick says this in his, his, uh, his essay, um, which, by the way, I should send to you so that you might post it for your listeners. Yeah, please. Uh, he is updating it, by the way, just so you know. It was written 20 years ago, but it's it's really appropriate for today. Um, he basically says that the, the AI that we might meet as ET is going to appear so powerful as to be like, you know, something like a deity. Right. Okay. So on the back of that, I'm still getting over the space agency worship stuff, and I know that's came up, but we'll leave that for another time, okay? Um, uh, we have a whole other rabbit hole, and we don't have time for that. So um, weird. I'm not joking. It is so weird. No, no, but... yeah, I know. I've I've heard of that before, but it's a totally different rabbit hole. Sorry, folks. Um, so seeing those kind of constants and patterns, repeating symbols, what does that mean for you? Can I wonder, can or should someone look into seeing, for example, the same time on a clock over and over again, Personally, I keep seeing eleven eleven now for months on clocks, okay? Um I just kinda go, Oh, that's interesting. You think of a song and it comes on the radio, you know, thinking of a word and it appears on the car registration in front of you in some way, shape or form. It could all be coincidence, but is there a way that this is signs of some sort of connection, something speaking to individuals or us as a species? Okay, so yeah, I think that um, some of the things that we consider to be like superpowers, okay, so like a precognition or something like that, I think are going to be found to actually be natural, um, in the sense that we do have technologies now that can read our brain waves. And if we think about, say, a song, or if we think about a, uh, you know, I think somebody did it with a Van Gogh painting, and the, the, um, the instrument was able to recreate just based on reading our brainwave patterns. So if you think about that, that's a form of cognition, mind reading, right? And that's something that we've just operationalized. And so that's, that's actually something that's not woo anymore because we, okay, so we do have brainwaves. Our brainwaves do have certain patterns. And at some point, <laughs> they will be read, right? And by AI or some type of instrument that we've created, they're already doing that now. Okay, so that said, um, you know, there's um, the idea that can we even separate this idea of, you know, what spiritual or mental or subjective from, you know, this, um, 
I guess, okay, Andy, let me ask you more specifically. Um, can you restate your question so that I could better answer it so we won't, won't go off into um, like a rabbit hole, I guess, or we might. <laughs> we so let, let's narrow it down to me as an individual then. I keep seeing 11-11 on a clock. Is the likelihood, uh, because this is something I see a lot of folks mentioning online, is it likely I'm seeing 11-11 for a reason? Am I being spoken to by something else? Am I, you know, connected into something else for a reason? Or is it more likely that subconsciously I'm just very aware of the time and I check the time a lot and I'm never really clicking on it until I see 11.11, but I'm also seeing 11.07, 11 11.25, 12.18, but never registering those as being anything special. What What's your take on that? Yes. Okay. So I think that these kinds of things, which I do talk about, right? Synchronicities, um, uh, meaningful coincidences um, that seem improbable. Okay. Um, I think... I do have an examination of this, both in encounters and in American cosmic, because once you start to, you know, think about these things, they actually happen a lot and you pay attention to them and they even happen more. And you're like, it seems as if I'm being led. It's, I used to say that synchronicity and coincidence, these are the engines of religion because within every single religious tradition, I've heard people say to me, it was improbable that this happened. Therefore God, you know, intervened and it was an intervention. Now I'm not going to say that it wasn't an intervention, a godly intervention, because what do I know? You know, I'm not going to make a judgment call like that, but what I am going to say is this. I do think that I like the interpretation given to these events by uh, Tyson Yunkaporta, who wrote Sand Talk, um, he's an Aboriginal Australian, and he basically talks about these. He calls them extra cognitive events. And the reason why he calls them extra cognitive is because within the Western framework that we learn, say, at high school or university, we're not taught about these kinds of events, right? We're only taught about them through either religious traditions or spiritual traditions, or if you're in California, everybody talks about talks about it. Um and we call them synchronicities, like Carl Jung talked about synchronicities. I think that this is just the way that the world is actually structured. And that once we've honed our mental instrument, our, our brain, to paying attention, these things are going to pop up all over the place. And we're going to find that life is intrinsically meaningful. And we don't have to search for meaning because it's actually really pretty cool. Um, once I start to pay attention to stuff, which, you know, I do now. I'm never bored. Like, how can you be bored? I mean, life is really amazing. The things that happen are an adventure, right? And so we don't have to go searching for an adventure. All we have to do is just like look around and open our eyes. And so I think that these kinds of things happen, especially people who are ufologists, tend to be people who are already clued in that something isn't as it seems, you know, well, our government isn't actually telling us what's going on. Okay, we know that now. And they've even admitted it. Okay, so now we kind of can move forward and get on with this adventure, right, of, of life. And that's, that's why, you know, those things are happening. Is it that we are being led by an intelligence that's greater than us? Well, I think that we contain an intelligence that's greater than us. You know, it's not going to be our unconscious mind. So our unconscious mind often, um, you know, we, we can, we know it exists through like faux pas, right? So we make these, like, um, we say stuff 
that we don't mean to say, but it's actually true. Okay. We've all had that experience. You didn't mean to say it, but it's actually true. Oops. I've said that thing. Um, they're called Freudian slips. Um, a lot of times when we're doing creative work, like either writing or doing art, um, we actually do things that we're like, whoa, did I, did I do that? Or, you know, that's amazing. You know, I, I and so a lot of people who are creative geniuses, like uh, Srinivasan Ramanujan, who's an Indian mathematician passed away, but he used to think that Lakshmi, the goddess was, was giving him um, calculations that people are still working on today. Right now, did, was it actually the goddess Lakshmi? I'm not going to say it's not, but then I'm also going to think a lot of people say that, you know, they have external agents giving them these, these amazing creative things that they then operationalize. Um, and it could that just be a process that humans can access and cultivate. So that's, that's more of how I would look at it, but I'm not going to discount the people who are the believing in, you know, um, Lakshmi or the Greek gods. But I do want to specifically point out though, this Greek God thing is pretty interesting. That Tom DeLong notes. Why? In what way? Because I witnessed it myself because I saw the, the actual uh, ritualistic ways in which these were invoked during launches, space launches and things like that. Uh, not just you know, as an aside, oh yeah, let's put, let's plaster a a Greek God image on this, uh, rocket. No, a complete ritual around the whole thing. Uh, And within that, was it specifically Greek mythology, Greek gods, or was it a mixture of other? No, it was, it was, um, specifically Roman. So it was basically taking, you know, because the Romans took the Greek gods and renamed them Mm. and everything. But it's Roman because they're using Latin and they're not using Catholic Latin, which is medieval, a medieval form of Latin. They're using actual first, second century Latin. So it's this very specific type of Latin. To what end and what I think of, have you ever seen the movie Cabin in the Woods? Yes, that's a scary movie. <laughs> it is, but that's what goes through my head when you're saying what you're saying. And if anyone's not seen it, the idea, and I don't think I can spoil it because it's such a strange film. It's not what you think it's going to be if you start watching it. Um, the idea that the gods are still here and need to be appeased and need to have sacrifices made in a certain way. But in a, it's a very modern take on that, if you've seen it, Diana, obviously. Um, is is that the right idea I'm getting? I think so. Um, except they're not here on earth. They're, you know, cause they're, they're flying these things into space. They're, you know, the rockets are going, uh, they're flying satellites up into space. And so they, they put messages on the satellites. I mean, it's so weird that honestly, I, I, I don't like to do any kind of public talks about them that go out into the public just for small audiences who can understand and be okay with it because it's so weird. I honestly just think, I don't even know what to think about it. I know what I think about it, but I just, certain things you, you assume, you know, after you've been exposed to it and you're like, I don't know if I actually want to tell people about that. Cause that's, that's pretty weird. <laughs> Diana, I, may, I maybe have to look at flying you to the UK uh, on a credit card and seeing if people will uh, reimburse me by buying tickets to that for a small audience somewhere in the UK. And uh, yeah, people get in touch with me if that's something you'd be interested in. Cause I'm sure 
there's be at least enough people to get you over here, Diana, uh, comfortably, of course, to to talk about that because that would be fascinating. And us in the UK, we get left out a lot. Um, so so yeah. <laughs> um, but listen, I'll wrap up a little bit on the book, and we'll get listener questions. There was so many of them, Diana, and that's fascinating what we've started going into. Um, folks, this will be split up into two parts, and if you want to hear the second part early or in full if you're on any of the paid platforms you hear the full interview all put together otherwise it'll be split up into two parts just because of the length of it and diana's been very generous with her time um i want to ask just to kind of finish off uh, do you think given what we've talked about there that might actually come into it diana you've spoken to hundreds of scientists researchers in your work in ufos and, and your professional life as well it's been 11 years worth now of work just in UFOs. Do you see any common theme that comes up in either your discussions, your work, any patterns that you think the UFO community overlook? It's not talked about as often as it should be or just not as explored as it could be? Yes, I do. And I think that, um, I think the UFO community, first off, it's um, there's a lot of emphasis in uh, on the congressional hearings right now. Um, but the, I think that the UFO community needs to know too, though, a lot of people are actually still doing a lot of research and they're doing it quietly because they have to do it quietly. Um, you know, there can't be, so in a sense, the, the media being focused so closely on what's happening is taking a lot of heat off of some quiet research that's happening. And, um, I think that's, might be by design, but it doesn't matter because the effect of it is that um, a lot, there's a lot going on that's very anomalous and people are researching it. And I think it's good. And I think that people with research skills um, in the community um, be heartened because there's a lot that's, that's happening. And, and when you, uh, I always, you know, I always go back to Jacques Vallée because he has some really good advice. And some of his advice is if you see, if you want to do this research, the best way to do it is stay, stay as much as you can out of media and go quietly to the places that don't get a lot of attention um, and find your, your cases that way, find cases that don't get a lot of media attention and then do a deep dive into those cases to get the data and, you know, keep, you know, and, and talk to other people who do the same. I wonder then, in writing the book, you mentioned very early on, the question I posed to myself before writing this book was, what and whose stories about UFOs are being silenced today? Do you feel in writing the book and putting it out, you've got that answer to your own satisfaction? Oh, absolutely, yes. So um, I don't think that they're being silenced, like, you know, as as a way to kind you know, intentional silence and suppression. Just what's, you know, no, if anybody wants to silence something, they just flood the media with other information. So it's easily done today. You know, this kind of Project Blue Book stuff, it's, it's, it looks a lot different today than it did back, you know, 50 years ago So um, or more. Um, so what's not being talked about is what, you know, because a lot of communities believe that they're in contact. And what do they have to say about that? So I explored a lot of that. Awesome. Well, Diana, let's move into listener questions. And that's a nice way to end part one. And I'll save my last couple of questions to steal my own listener section. Uh, so thanks, Diana. And thanks for everyone listening to part one. We'll begin part two straight away. Thanks, Andy.
That is all for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. Apple and Spotify do make a huge difference to the algorithm. If you're checking the show out on YouTube, please don't forget to like and leave a comment on here as well. Any sharing you do is very much appreciated on any social media platform. And finally, you can listen to shows ad-free and sponsor-free in their glorious full versions by subscribing for less than the price of a coffee on Apple, Spotify, just search That UFO Podcast Premium. YouTube, you can sign up and be a member or you can do that through patreon.com. Thank you very much for listening, folks. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Folk. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoke.